This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Yara, welcome to Bookings with Moran Rout and Ruth Todd. And uh, Moran, I have a, a travel book. Um, well, it's not a travel book, a book about a journalist who spent time in Myanmar when things were happening. Very topical. And I have a New Zealand novel, um, but it's set in Berlin by Bridget van der Zijp, who has written three novels, all of them interesting and provocative. I Love Me Broken is Bridget van der Zijp's third novel. Her first novel, Misconduct, was shortlisted for both the Commonwealth Writers' Best First Book and the Montana New Zealand Book Awards' Best First Book of Fiction. She's just returned from three years in Berlin on a Goethe Institute scholarship where she wrote this new work. Marina, and welcome to Book Ends, Bridget. No. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, Berlin was um you you'd come up with the idea of writing this book or tackling this particular subject before you went to Berlin, hadn't you? Um yes, yes. I um I I had a I had a job as a contract writer for the Neurological Foundation quite a long time ago. And so um, when I had that job, I had an opportunity to think quite a lot about the impact of neurological diseases on individuals. And so I had been sort of playing around in the back of my mind with this idea of um, writing a novel about somebody who um, finds out they're at risk of a neurological disease and um, sort of runs away from their life um, to go and live somewhere else to um, consider um, the courage of facing up to the, you know, the disease. And I also had sort of randomly come across the story of Count von Nachner, which, um, uh, for people who don't know, he was a he was a, um, a sea captain who had been marauding in the Pacific during the First World War, and then he was captured and he came down here and he was uh, placed on an island in uh, Motuhi in the Hauraki Gulf. And he he sort of made a bit of a gentleman's agreement with the man that was running the camp on that he wouldn't escape, but he tricked him. He pretended that he was going to put on a play, and he asked for some props, which included an atlas and a and a curtain. And um, his um, one of his um, uh, fellow inmates had made a sextant of things that they found in a barn on the island, <laughs> and then they <laughs> they took off into the Hauraki Gulf and. Um, in the speedboat that belonged to the camp commander and then they actually captured a scow and headed up to um, the Kermitic Islands. And um, at the time it was a sort of a massive cause celeb and people were kind of glued to the daily papers and people were puttering about in their boats in the Haraki Gulf trying to find the, the count who was, you know, our enemy of war. <laughs> and there's something very um, fun and interesting about that story, which was, you know, sort of about you know, our, our relative innocence, but also um, he wrote a book afterwards that became very popular here. So I think we kind of connect with that maverick 
character. Yeah. Yes, he's certainly somebody that um, yeah, Canterbury people know about him because of his internment on Ripapa Island. But when when you went to Berlin, I guess having decided that you were going to send your your protagonist Ginny off somewhere, then your experiences in Berlin coming to grips with that amazing city would be mirrored somewhat with hers. Yeah, I, I I think so. So, uh, you know, I like to write these stories which are about sort of um, contemporary questions of identity. And so um, Berlin is a city where people tend to go to at a time in their life when they're wanting to kind of reframe themselves and also when they're wanting to present themselves as artists. And, there's, you know, it's it's also a city that's informal motto, motto is... Um, poor but sexy <laughs> and so uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, freedom of identification there and there's a lot of subcultures there there's a lot of sort of um, clubs there that are catering to quite um, uh, um, to fetish and quite sort of you know a radical identification of um, sexuality and so um, and so because because the character Jenny is kind of caught up in this idea about if you knew that your life was going to be foreshortened, would you would you tend more towards hedonism? So she's kind of attracted to these people in Berlin that are doing kind of rash things. You also, um, the, the title of the book is a reflection on your sort of intrigue with the language and, and how how Germans put together these compound words that that was a that was a, a an, an amusing part of what could have been a very somber book yeah um, there's a there's a phrase um denglish which is um, a mixture of Do- deutsch and english and so it's a it's a phrase about um you know you can't quite directly translate german and english together that comes out weird and so i did sort of play around with that quite a bit in the book and also, you know, Germans have this wonderful sort of capacity to put words together to try and describe exact things. Like, um, for example, one of them in the book is Liebensmut, which is means uh, living courage, which but it means the the courage to you know face up to life, basically. <laughs> and <laughs> so, that's yeah, what Johnny is looking for, isn't it? In a sense, and trying to grapple with what her life will be if she does or she doesn't know. Must be interesting for a writer to to grapple with that as as a person, you know, your own reactions and thoughts about how you would do it. But you have to do it in the in the characters through through, the yeah, character. through them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, it's quite a big question. I mean, it's um, uh, facing a neurodegenerative disease. I mean. Um, Jenny is facing a particular disease, but in actual fact, I think the the question is quite universal. In that, um, if if you if you knew if you knew that in your future was a cognitive decline, would you would you want to know, or would you um, would you prefer to live with the uncertainty until circumstances forced you to know? And that's the, that's the question that Jenny kind of grapples with. And you know, I, th- I think in a way, you know, um, like for example, a lot of people that I know have um, parents that have Alzheimer's, for example, at the moment. And you know, there is an opportunity to take a test to find out whether or not you have 
um, a, a likelihood towards that, but I don't know anybody that has taken that test. <laughs> <laughs> Not the <that> do <you laughs> because, <laughs> because, you know, the fear of cognitive decline is actually very large. And, um, you know, there, there has been a, the film um, around um, recently um, of um, Lillian Hanley's film, um, so there's been quite a bit of publicity about that because she's actually looking into that question herself in a very personal way and um, examining it. And I think I, I think um, one of the things that becomes clear in her film, but also in others, is that even though it's a very sort of harrowing question to face, when you do face it, you do also have to make these decisions about how you live or how you want to live and who you want to to surround your, yourself with in your life. Yeah, and Ginny has a very loyal fiancé who's kept at a distance back in New Zealand and kept somewhat in the dark about what's going on with her. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. I saw a view that um, actually, you know, like um, described him as um, vanilla, um, because he's he's very kind of loyal and consistent, and Jenny is kind of reacting against it, consistency a little bit, and um, and the fact that somebody saw him like that, it kind of made me wonder: is like our loyalty and consistency are those are those bland considerations in a person, or are they actually quite strong considerations in a person? And um, with Jenny, she she sort of um, she she kind of reacts against his consistency and runs away, but then she also kind of finds herself missing it as well. But then also she is facing a disease where kind of, you know, some of the early symptoms that have to do with um, impulsiveness. And so she... Um, she yeah, she, sort of she may or may not be. Yes. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, impulsiveness is a hard thing to grapple with, is that, you know, like, you hmm. know, people are impulsive, so it's hard to know whether you're being impulsive because you might be symptomatic or whether you're actually just being impulsive. And so she's kind of reacting against um, against his consistency, but it's in, a, in a way she's trying to sort of hurtle herself towards making a decision that she's actually unable to make. Well, if it's any comfort, I thought he was a lovely person and um, oh, absolutely the person that you'd want to have around you as you were being impulsive and emotional and, and, and you know, stricken with this awful dilemma. And you've brought it right up to, I mean, you've set it in contemporary times because, you know, their lives are constrained at the end as ours all have been. By a by a pandemic by COVID. Yeah, exactly. And um, actually, um, one of the things in the book is that um, everybody is from somewhere else. <laughs> I mean, um, Ginny is from New Zealand, but she grew up in Canada. Her fiance is uh, living in New Zealand, but he's half Sri Lankan. When she gets to Berlin, she meets people who are from Australia and from Iran and from Syria and all sorts of places. And um, and um, I, I I did that quite purposely, partly because um, often when you when you go to Berlin, you, you know you you meet people quite easily actually because people have gone there at this time when they're trying to kind of um, represent themselves, and so you make friends quite easily. And and um, but you know there's a sort of fluidity, and when you're away and disconnected from your home life, you think a lot about. Um, your identity as 
from somewhere else. And so, and also there's a kind of a big fluidity in modern life. You know, we learn a lot about um, values from people who are from different countries moving around, but that fluidity has kind of been dampened down by COVID. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, we've had decisions taken out of our hands by events, really, haven't we? We've, we don't have that that choice any longer of just hopping on a plane and heading off and finding ourselves. <laughs> we have to hu- hunker down and, and well, you do. Um, we're a little... Um, we're a little happier now, um, but uh, it was interesting that you chose to bring that into the into the story right at the end. Yeah, I, I well, my story was that I was intending to stay in Berlin for a little longer, but in in, um, in February last year, I decided that I I should come back for a visit because somebody in my family was not particularly well, and then um, uh, so I came back and almost um, immediately. Um, we New Zealand went into lockdown and so I was here for that period and then I realised that probably I wasn't going to be able to go back and live the same kind of life in Berlin. So I, I gave up my flat, but I also did a lot of freaking out because I had almost finished the manuscript and, you know, um, I think I think a lot of writers felt at the beginning that um, what are we writing about now? You know, our, our, is the world going to be so changed that what we used to write about before is, is not um, the same or not relevant and so what I did was um, uh, I, I, I kind of realised at a certain point that um, we were going to forget what it was like at the very beginning of the of the COVID. You know, once you're through it, you forget what it was like at the beginning, those feelings that you didn't really know what was coming. And so I decided to rewrite the book so it actually ended at that point rather than have to write about social distancing and masks and things yes, like that. Yes, very dreary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, it was a good place. It was a good place to end it because you know they had to make certain choices, um, and we won't go into what those were. So, thank you. It's a it's a very timely book in lots of ways because people are start, uh, focusing at the moment on on those um, dreadful genetic um, genetically based degenerative diseases and um, and our freedoms and who we are and what we're going to be. So thank you, Bridget. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The book is called I Love Me Broken. It's by Bridget van der Zijp and it's published by Victoria University Press. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. Jessica Mudgett is a Sydney-based author and journalist whose articles have been published by The Economist, BBC, CNN and so many more. She was accredited as a newspaper journalist in London in 2009 and spent a decade working in the UK, Bangladesh and Myanmar before returning to Australia in 2016. A Home in Myanmar is her first book, where she had four years. Welcome to the programme, Jessica. Hi, Ruth. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, it's um, a fascinating story because I've always been interested from the time I read about Aung San Suu Kyi being under house arrest for so long and watched her win the Nobel Prize and all those things and felt, how could someone with her qualities, you know, survive that? And leading up to the election, which you mentioned just now, um, there was a hope, wasn't there, that that democracy would... um, 
the some form of democracy would happen. There certainly was because um, Aung San Suu Kyi's party won two elections, you know, by a landslide, um, and she governed for for five years um, before the military coup in February. So it was it was shocking and completely out of the blue um, that there was a coup. But I would also I also I have hope that there will be democracy will be restored in Myanmar as well. I don't think that this is the end of the story. I'm sure it doesn't. So when you you married, um, you met your husband in Bangladesh where you were working, and you both decided you wanted to go to Myanmar. Was there some, something important about going there? Was what led you there? Um, it was it was being captivated by Myanmar for years from afar. Um, I tried to go there as a tourist um, in 2006, but for various reasons that didn't work out. Um, but like so many people, you know, you, you see a few photographs and, and read a couple of books and just become more and more intrigued. And then when um, there were some signs that the country was moving from dictatorship to democracy. And at the same time, I had a, a connection um, to the editor of the Myanmar Times. I, I seized that and um, was really excited to go and work there and learn about this country. Yes, you must have had uh, quite an exciting life while you were there because you um, were a sub-editor and a features editor. And there was, as, at the beginning, I, I remember the first day you arrived and nobody really spoke to you. <laughs> no, no. And I was wildly excited um, to be there and I thought it was sort of going to be a you know, high-five group hug situation with, you know, editors huddled around, computer screens and things like that, and it was completely not like that at all. It was a very cool, I dare I say, frosty reception. Um, they were all-male all editors, a lot of them Australian, um, and they just went out for tea without me, and I, I sat at my desk, and that continued to happen. Um, so I, I definitely felt like I was the new girl at the office. It took a bit of time um, for us to warm up. I did end up with some wonderful colleagues there, though. Yes, I was glad about that. What I enjoyed about the book was so much about the history of Myanmar, uh, the, the modern history, and um, and yet there was so much that was personally your um, living there and the conditions you were living in, getting a house, getting v- visas to work uh, for you and your husband, who was a journalist as well um, in, in the media. So I just um, enjoyed the, the um, both stories, really. There were almost two stories. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's how I love to write. My fa- favourite kind of writing as a journalist has always been travel writing or that first-person sort of the misadventure um, while also conveying a lot of um, factual information about something that, that I find really interesting. I, I was surprised that um, you said that one of the um, most um, diverse nations uh, ethnic, and ethnic diverse and ethnic minorities were among the most persecuted in the world in Myanmar. I hadn't realised that. I've only read about the um, Muslim Rohingyas um, who were, by this uh, military regime, have been um, persecuted so badly and uh, many are now in refugee camps and in, in, uh, where you were before in um, uh, well, Bangladesh. It's 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 incredibly sad. Um, there's 135 um, ethnic minorities, 
while there's some contention around that figure, um, yes, the Rohingya um, has rightly, you know, dominated news headlines because what's happened to them has been so atrocious. Um, but little known, and sadly little known, is that, um, you know, the, there's been the world's longest civil war raging in Myanmar with ethnic minorities involved against the military who have a very, they have a very strange attitude to diversity, which is to try and contain it. Um, they they don't allow um, minority languages to be taught at schools. There's even been cases of teachers who have tried to, to tutor students after school hours in their native language uh, being thrown into prison. It's, it's really quite horrific. And it's a very, this is a very strange, a strange way of thinking um, that the military, they, you know, they've lived in self-imposed isolation for 50 years and all I can say is that their, their thinking is sort of warped and they have this queer way of believing that the Bama race, that the majority, um, the Buddhist race are superior human beings. And that's to the exclusion of everyone, not just ethnic minorities in, in Myanmar, but even to the Thais and Indians um, and, you know, Bangladeshis. So it's, and it's, it's you know, obviously that's a completely misguided view of the world and you only end up um, hurting yourself and hurting your own people. The time that you were there was... Um as you said, um, reason for, one of the reasons for going there was that the, the feeling was by international people particularly that they were leading up to um, a new election and that um, Aung San Suu Kyi would certainly win it um, and the military were um, going along with that story that um, I remember you talk about Obama coming over and um, congratulating the military for the way they're changing. Um, it didn't, and, but you weren't suspicious about that. You had a, a lot of hope, didn't you? I did. Um, I'm a very trusting person, and that's probably one of my weakest qualities as a journalist. Um, I have been called gullible. I always believed in Aung San Suu Kyi, and whenever you know there'd be heated arguments at the Foreign Correspondents Club, I was always on Aung San Suu Kyi's side. And uh, people would say, especially, you know, some Myanmar people who had lived through the horrors of a military regime, there was a saying about them that it was same wine, different bottles. So these guys just took off their military uniform and they popped on their parliamentary uniform, but you cannot trust them. And so, but, but when the 2015 election was held peacefully and the results were respected and Aung San Suu Kyi's party came to power, that seemed to seal the deal. And I believe, and most people thought that, okay, this is, the, this is a new beginning for the country and this is permanent. Um, and it just goes to show. I mean, obviously, you know, you can see a lot of things in hindsight, um, but the military could never and should never have been trusted. But, I mean, look, they, they convinced the President of the United States that it was, this was a real thing. Um, he came twice. So, you know, and it's that they, they've broken everybody's trust. And so one of the things I worry about is, well, you know, which other government would, would trust trust these guys again if they remain in power. You can't these are not the sort of people you want to do business with or set up a school with or anything like that. During those historic elections of twenty fifteen, you were the first expat expatriate journalist to work for the country's state run newspaper, The Global New Light of Myanmar. How was that different from your first job? Well, it was I mean the the global new light of Myanmar is has a reputation in Myanmar is that it's the propaganda newspaper. Um, it, you know, prints some incredible, incredible, like ludicrous 
stories that are patently untrue. Um, why would I want to work there? I thought it would be fascinating to see from the inside how Myanmar's propaganda machine works, um, whereas the Myanmar Times was a privately owned, very respected newspaper um, you know, of excellent quality, re- really had its finger on the pulse, and I, I think that was its um, its, its motto. Um, but at the at the state-run newspaper, when they approached me, they said, "Okay, the elections are coming. We want to make this newspaper people-focused, um, and we want to change from our old ways. And could you come and help us do that? So, training journalists, toning down the propaganda." Um, providing information to readers that would be genuinely useful in the lead-up to the election. So that was an assignment I I most definitely wanted to take. And it worked out well for you? It did. I mean, and it surprised me. I I went to that newspaper with my own prejudices. I thought, you know, the, the journalists there would be military lackeys and they'd be brainwashed and they were not. Uh, one of them was a, a former political prisoner and they worked at this job. They were very thoughtful people. Um, and they worked at this job because it was a way of being able to use English in a professional context. And so you walk- oh, sorry. Sorry, which is just, it's an incredibly rare opportunity. There's, there's so few chances to do that. You certainly take opportunities, Jessica, and I'm sure you've done that in the past as well. But uh, you then went on to the British Embassy. That was quite different. <laughs> That was that was a, that was another world for me. I'd never been in that world of um, you know it, it was a beautifully elegant place for one, um, and you know there was all this protocol talk of protocol, and I felt you know sort of awkward and gangly and stuff um, because we had some VIP visitors come, and I had to present to trade delegations. Um, whereas I was sort of used to schlepping around you know the streets of Yangon with my dictaphone. So it was, a, it was a whole different world of, you know, speeches and cocktail parties and presentations. Um, but I loved that. And that was partly economic. At the time, I was struggling to set up my freelance career. Um, and when this six-month consultancy was advertised, again, I guess it's the, the journalist or the author in me, I'm not sure. I thought that would be so interesting. Well, it's so well, it's so um, personally written and we get the history. I learned so much about Myanmar and especially you managed to put in the epilogue. Well, I mean, the epilogue, I mean, I, you know, um, it it may seem like the epilogue was written a long time afterwards, but um, that was actually just written purely sequentially as I finished the book because I finished the book in April. Um, But... In between me, me leaving Myanmar in 2016 and 2021, early 2021, um, you know, so much happened to me. I had two children. I, you know, separated from my husband. I set up my freelance career and wrote my book. And, of course, the situation in Myanmar became completely done. So there is quite a bit in, in the epilogue to bring it to the, to the present day. Well, thank you for doing that because uh, that was important to really to get in as much as you possibly could because you were there at a time when history was taking place. I, I was, and if I had, if I was to start writing the book now, um, it wouldn't be the same book. It wouldn't be as hopeful. I wouldn't be as gullible. Um, and, but, but I'm so glad that I wrote it. I just wrote it thinking that this is one of the new books about Myanmar, which 
is a, is a brighter, Myanmar's brighter future, and that there would be all these kinds of books, you know, travel logs and, um, you know, many first-person sort of light-hearted accounts. But then, of course, you know, after the coup, Myanmar's now changed, even if democracy is restored. Um, my book has essentially documented something that's become historical, um, which makes me really sad. So thank you for writing it, and I hope it will be the first of more um, books where you travel and uh, or where you do more newspaper work or whatever you're going to do in the future. Um, I really enjoyed reading Our Home in Myanmar by Jessica Muddit, and she lives in Sydney. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.